and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod. Uh, I'm Richard Hermer, a human rights barrister at Matrix Chambers in London. And over the coming weeks, we're aiming to examine the corona uh, emergency, coronavirus emergency, from the perspective of lawyers, and in particular, the challenges to the rule of law, human rights and civil liberties that the emergency poses. Now, although uh, this is uh, a lawyer talking to you, and I'm going to be joined by some colleagues in a moment, it's really important to say at the outset that this is definitely not a podcast aimed only for lawyers. Rather, what we really want it to be is of interest to anyone engaged with the importance of human rights and the rule of law. And that should mean everyone. We are uh, coming, obviously, from uh, separate uh, locations. Uh, we are, as lawyers, law-abiding. So this is uh, an uh, e-podcast, and I'm afraid uh, you'll have to forgive us as various children barge in on our separate studies. Today's pod, which we'll turn to in a minute, is looking at the United Kingdom's response over the past few weeks to the crisis and examining the extent to which the government measures are actually based in law or whether they are compliant with human rights standards. Uh, in the weeks that follow, we're aiming to address a number of other topics. We're going to start with looking at the international response, in particular how some countries appear to be using the crisis as a means of grabbing or consolidating state power. And we're going to be talking to human rights lawyers in countries such as Hungary and Israel. Future pods are going to look at another, uh, uh, other uh, aspects of the crisis, from medical ethics and the legality of choosing who gets the ventilators, to the impact of the crisis on the most vulnerable, not least refugees. And we're also going to discuss how courts, both here and abroad, are managing to cope with the crisis and social distancing. Today, though, as I said, we're going to be looking at the legal basis and the human rights implications of the UK's response thus far to the crisis. And with me to discuss this are two of my colleagues from Matrix, Philippa Kaufman and uh, Murray Hunt. Philippa is a human rights QC who's acted in a range of cases, uh, not least challenging government through judicial review, through policing, and also a range of cases about international human rights. Murray is one of the leading voices in the protection of human rights and the rule of law in this country. He's currently director of the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law, having previously served for many years as the legal advisor to Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights. And Murray is also a visiting professor in human rights law at the University of Oxford. Uh, good afternoon to you both. Um, I'm going to start, uh, as I said, by um, we're going to start today by looking at the impact uh, on the rule of law in the United Kingdom's response. And perhaps we can just begin by framing that discussion by just answering what we mean when we talk about legality and the rule of law. What are the tools that we use to answer the question, is what's happening lawful? Is it compliant with uh, human rights and the rule of law? Murray, perhaps you could start us off by helping us with how we frame this discussion. Yes, thanks very much, Richard. And uh, thanks very much to this opportunity, the great initiative. Um, first thing to say, I think, is clearly this is an emergency. It's a genuine emergency and it requires urgent emergency responses from governments worldwide. But, and this is a very important thing to say at the beginning of our podcast, law continues to apply in emergencies. It doesn't cease to apply. And that's one basic requirement of the rule of law, that even in emergency situations where governments have to act swiftly 
uh, in the public interest to protect important public interests, including the lives of its citizens, law still applies. Um, so the question is, what is the law which applies in those emergency situations? And there's a quite rich body of law which continues to apply in those situations. Uh, all the fundamental standards contained in the Human Rights Act, in the European Convention on Human Rights, in our international human rights law obligations. And there's a wide range of international standards which actually address public emergencies and the minimum standards which have to be observed by governments when they are acting in public emergencies. And those are derived from international human rights law, but also a range of different other legal standards. Uh, for example, in the Venice Commission's rule of law checklist, there are some specific soft law principles, the Syracuse principles, which address how human rights need to be protected, even in emergency situations. And the basic requirements in these legal standards come down to a few fairly, fairly simple ideas which any non-lawyer I think can understand. First of all, measures need to have a legal basis. They have to have a, a basis in law. So Parliament needs to have authorised any exceptional powers. They need to be necessary, strictly necessary, according to the emergency. They need to be proportionate to that emergency. They need to be non-discriminatory, so they mustn't target any vulnerable groups or minorities. There needs to be ongoing accountability to Parliament, and they need to be reviewable, both by Parliament in an ongoing way, but also there needs to be an opportunity for access to independent courts and tribunals when disputes arise about the exercise of the powers. So, of course, whilst coronavirus itself is obviously new and lawyers and courts and governments have happened had to deal with it, the idea of public emergencies and the legal response to that is absolutely not new. It's something that we've faced before and had to cater for before. Absolutely. And in the past, most of the emergencies that we've been used to within living memory anyway, have been of a different nature. They've generally tended to be in relation to countering terrorist threats. Um, and so a lot of the legal standards have been developed in the context of that kind of threat. Um, a public health emergency on this scale, of course, while not um, unprecedented to have public health emergencies, on this global scale, I think it is um, unprecedented. Uh, and it's a particular type of emergency which raises its own particular type of challenges, uh, including the difficulty of all the institutions of accountability continuing to operate in the usual way when parliaments and courts themselves are having to observe working from home requirements and only key workers are actually going to work in these important institutions. So it's a very particular type of emergency and we need to make sure that the standards we've developed in relation to emergencies generally are articulated properly in relation to this type of health emergency. So Murray, you've talked a bit about the kind of the uh, uh, international and regional frameworks and how they inform our understanding of what the rule of law means. Uh, Philippa, could you just talk a bit and just explain more in a domestic, in a UK English-Welsh context, what we mean by the principle of legality, which again may echo some of the things that Murray's been talking about. Yes, yeah, so in a, in a domestic setting, the principle of legality, in its broader sense, um, again, means that what governments do, what the executive done, uh, has to fall within the four corners of the powers uh, that have been conferred on it by law, that is by, uh, most commonly, by parliament and through legislation. Um, and then, specifically, uh, when it comes to uh, actions or measures that are taken that infringe human rights or infringe fundamental rights, then 
the infringement it, it, it not only has to be authorised by Parliament, um, it must be authorised either expressly or by necessary implication. So if Parliament is silent on uh, the particular um, uh, power in question, it doesn't expressly allow the executive to uh, take a step which interferes with the right, then the courts will uphold that interference if it necessarily follows as part and parcel of what Parliament expressly confers. So we've got then some long-established uh, rules of the game that enable us to assess the legality of what the government is doing and um, to assess from that whether or not they're respecting the rule of law. And from what you're both saying, kind of key parts of that is there has to be a lawful basis for a government act. And even then it needs to be proportionate. And I wonder if we can kind of move from that then to look at the government's response. And let's start, if we may, at a time before the Coronavirus Act, which came in last week, and put our minds back. It seems like years now, but it was only really a week or so ago when the Prime Minister started his daily briefings and uh, was telling us all that we needed to exercise social distancing and stay at home. Um, Philippa, was there, was there actually a legal basis for that insofar as the Prime Minister was trying to, trying to order us to stay at home? Uh, probably not. I mean, I've looked for it, and I know others have looked for it, and it's very difficult to see that um, what was done was done in exercise of any powers uh, conferred under any existing legislation at the time. I mean, this was before the Coronavirus Act 2020 had been implemented. There are, or there were, um, pieces of legislation already in force at the time. Um, the Civil Contingencies Act, um, which is a 2004 piece of legislation, and also the Public Health Control of Diseases Act, 1984. And both of these confer powers upon um, the government to pass regulations in order to uh, take measures necessary to prevent disease, protect life. Um, and they weren't exercised at the time. So basically it was executive degree, decree um, uh, without any legislative base at all. Uh, so in terms, of the, in terms of the tools that we were talking about for assessing legality, uh, at least those early measures kind of f fail that test, do they, from a, from, from a kind of a purely legal perspective? Yeah, they totally fail the test. But Should I'm surprised... I, I would... Sorry, Sorry. Mary. I was going to just um, say that I think the government was um, fairly carefully choosing its words in some of those yeah. um, bits of guidance and advice that it was giving. Um, and I think as it was feeling the political pressure uh, from examples in other countries to uh, bring in stricter controls, it was tightening its advice and its guidance. Uh, it was for a while still continuing to use the language of advice and guidance whilst it was preparing the legal basis for these more restrictive measures that actually are underpinned by statutory authorization. Um, and there was a short period, um, which I think peaked at the time we all received the text from the government, which said um, something along the lines of uh, new rules in fourth day at home. <laughs> um, and that moment, um, I think, was the sort, of, uh, the, the sort of point at which they had reached the maximum 
to which they could go in exploiting the ambiguity between government advice and rules which had some um, statutory underpinning and were enforceable by well, the Well, is police. that a bit generous, Murray? Um, I mean, isn't, isn't it more that's the point in which they almost inarguably exceeded it? I mean, I understand that before that point in time, very sensibly, the government is giving advice to people as to what they need to do to minimise the risk of them contracting the virus or others contracting the virus. But the text—I don't think they the text went considerably beyond that, didn't it? I mean, it, most people would have read that and thought, "Here is a law telling me what I have to do," whereas in fact it was no such thing. Yes, the text—the actual—the actual text of the text. You're right. Said new rules in force. Um, and and that was yeah you're you're right it's a it's a benevolent interpretation um, of the language that they were using the ambiguity but I think if you if you went and looked at the website that they took you to um, it was clearly guidance and they referred to there being enforcement powers that will be available in due time and um, I, I think the the point here really is that um, you know the, the 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 government was clearly feeling that it needed to send a much stronger signal it was beginning to be concerned that people weren't observing the guidance um, and, and pending the preparation of the legislation which would then come into force within days uh, it was quite happy to exploit as you say quite rightly people's um, uncertainty or lack of clarity about whether these rules were actually enforceable rules or not and that is potentially damaging from a rule of law point of view because trust people's trust Clarity of government communications is so important in these situations of outbreaks of disease. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but I think also one has to be, to some extent, charitable. That there, a public emergency calls for urgent action. And if one looks at the Coronavirus Act itself, it's uh, an act which is 340 pages long, which was plainly put together in terms of its final draft in very, very, very short order. And um, before that uh, was possible, it was necessary to react to the emergency as it was unfolding. And so I think I, I while I, I don't think there was a legislative base for some of the steps that were taken in advance, it is understandable that that should have happened. Um, and in reality, uh, uh, nobody is going to challenge it precisely because the situation is so urgent. But in terms of um, the position as it was, I mean, I can see why we all want to cut the government some slack and we can all understand that they were acting entirely in what they consider to be the public good in trying to get these measures in as soon as possible. But doesn't it become somewhat damaging if they try and wrap up as law measures that they're seeking to impose upon the population when in fact they are not law? I think the answer to that is that they very soon became law. So there might have been a couple of days when we were being required to do things that hadn't yet uh, been given um, legislative authority. But um, they soon did gain that authority. And I think in a situation of emergency, um, it, 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 whilst they, those measures remain illegal, it is understandable that the situation unfolded as it did. I think what would be much more concerning is if you were left in a situation where uh, the government continued to act by effectively executive decree. Because that would be completely contrary to the rule of law. 
well, it'd be utterly contrary to the rule of law, and that's exactly what they're doing in Hungary. I mean, they, they, the legislature has given authority for the executive to act entirely according to decree and, and the whim of Orban. And at that stage, Richard, I don't think the measures um, that were being, that were the ambiguous messages were being sent about whether they were rules in force or not, were actually being enforced um, by police, um, by the state. So, um, so that there was a period of that sort of um, ambiguity. Um, I think what's damaging about it potentially, um, although as Philippa says it's understandable, um, is that it is so important in these circumstances for there to be really clear communication and um, about what the government's doing. And on that score, for me, the UK government has actually been uh, quite good in putting scientific expertise and advice at the heart of its response, at making available uh, the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor. They've been very uh, ready to um, accept um, constructive criticism and to respond to that sort of criticism. And that, that sort of transparency um, and uh, reliance on expertise in a very transparent way, uh, I think has, has been a very positive part of the UK government's response to this. I, I agree with that. I'm sorry, Richard. I mean, I agree with that, but I think um, that it hasn't been entirely clear in its message to the government. Um, and as it's... Um, increase the restrictions it's left people relatively unsure about what it is they can and can't do and i think that's led into i hope one of the things we'll talk about later which is uh the disparate nature of the police response. yeah well let's come to that if we if we can in, in just a moment so but just to kind of summarize where we've got to in terms of the initial week or so before the legislation rolled in i think we're willing to give the government a bit of a pass that uh, technically uh, there are areas in which they uh, may have overstepped the mark, but for a short period of time, which in the circumstances, as kind of human rights lawyers, you might be thought quick to <laughs> quick and jealous, quick to criticise and jealous of the rule of law, uh, happy to give them a pass, a qualified pass. Can I t- t- turn then to the events of last week, which was rolling in the um, legislation? And perhaps, Philippa, could you just kind of outline for those listening what the legislation was. So the piece of legislation that most of us are aware of, uh, which received royal assent on the 25th of March, is the Coronavirus Act 2020, uh, which, as I indicated, is a very, very substantial um, enactment, running for something like 340 pages. Um, which has three main purposes. It received all the on the 25th of March. Um, and its aim is to give further powers to the government to slow the spread of the virus. Secondly, to reduce the resourcing of administrative burden on public bodies. And thirdly, it, it, it seeks to limit the impact of potential staffing shortages on the delivery of public services. So it's got three broad aims. and. Um, it, it does that by uh, create, giving very, very broad powers in many respects to um, ministers to pass secondary legislation, regulations, which will give effect to measures seeking to pursue those aims. Um, but it, it covers things such as modifying uh, mental health and mental uh, capacity legislation so that um, 
the absence of doctors who would ordinarily be required to play roles in certifying individuals so that they could, for example, be um, hospitalised compulsorily. Um, those administrative burdens are reduced by reducing the number of doctors who have to be involved, for example, in that certification. It also reduces or the, the protective measures in relation to patients being compulsorily administered with medication. So there are some very substantial measures here that um, impact upon human rights. Um, it also uh, creates um, powers to um, to expand, expand um, live links in uh, criminal trials so that criminal trials can take place when people are not actually present in person in the court. It's incredibly wide-ranging, confers powers in relation to transportation, storage, disposal of dead bodies, um, and uh, all these measures remain in place for a period of up to two years um, and there are certain measures within the legislation to ensure that Parliament considers um, the continued need for the measures, uh, that the relevant ministers who are issuing regulations report to Parliament on the exercise of um, the powers conferred under the Act. So um, it's incredibly wide-ranging, uh, as you say, and maybe we can come back to the two-year um, period. Um, but is this the sort of law that is the one that's perhaps that's impacting on most of us in the most dramatic way, which is sort of confining us for most of the day to, to homes, limiting the amount of exercise we can take? Um, is, do we look to, the, to this new Coronavirus Act for that? No, well, no, we don't actually. So the, the regulations that um, have locked us all down have actually been made under the 1984 Act, the Act that I mentioned. That's the public earlier. health uh, infectious disease. Yeah, public health. dealing with infectious diseases. Exactly. Yeah. So that piece of legislation also confers powers on ministers to make um, regulations. And those regulations can um, impose restrictions in relation to persons, things or premises in order uh, to meet the threat to public health. And it's under those regulations that all the restrictions to which we are subject um, uh, have been made. The restrictions both to us as individuals, the restrictions in relation to businesses, they all have arisen uh, through these 2020 regulations. And they, there is a real question about whether or not those regulations um, are what's called, we lawyers will call intravirus. That is whether or not the restrictions uh, on our movements are ones which are in fact empowered um, by the 1980s. So the Act is the main um, instrument by which Parliament has created those powers. It provides for ministers to make regulations, but the regulations can't give greater powers than the Act itself gave. Is, is, is that the principle that's at play? So that's exactly right. So when you look at a regulation, which is a piece of subordinate legislation, the power to make that subordinate legislation is conferred under a 
piece of primary legislation. And you have to construe that primary legislation and interpret it to see exactly what it empowers um, a minister to do by way of secondary legislation. So, Philippa, what lots of uh, commentators, certainly legal commentators, are suggesting at the moment is that the regulations that have been brought in to curtail our freedom of movement are unlawful because they go much further than the powers that were envisaged in the Act. I mean, the Act was, on the face of it, envisaged to have much narrower uh, 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 effect and certainly not capable of confining an entire nation uh, to their own homes. So um, that's an argument that's getting a, an increasing amount of momentum at the moment. What, what's your take on it? I certainly think it's strongly arguable. Um, the, it's quite a labyrinthine um, journey to take through the legislation, the primary legislation, the 1984 Act, to try and see exactly what it is that the Secretary of State is empowered to do by way of regulations. Um, he is allowed to impose general regulations that is, impose general restrictions um, in order to uh, manage the threat to public health. But those restrictions are then given some kind of partial definition, and the particular restriction, and the only one that can conceivably apply under this legislation, is one which ordinarily a magistrate is empowered under the legislation to impose upon a particular individual Um, and the magistrate uh, can only impose requirements on an individual where the magistrate him or herself is satisfied that that individual is or may be suffering from uh, the virus and so the, the, the reason why it becomes very questionable is that this is a provision which, uh, where it finds its place in the legislation, is restricted in its application to particular identifiable individuals. And secondly, they must be suffering or may be suffering from the virus uh, with a reasonable basis for concluding that. Whereas the measures that have actually been imposed uh, under the regulations applies to the entire population irrespective of whether or not anybody is suffering from the virus. Can can I ask you then, in light of the fact there is a potential argument that this is all unlawful, certainly in terms of confining people to their homes that are lawful, can I ask you both two questions about that from the perspectives of human rights lawyers? I mean, firstly, at this time, is that an argument that should be taken to the courts? When we're when it's when there's not least when there's such an obvious and overwhelming purpose for the directions that the the regulations, uh, which is really is to save lives. So should we as human rights lawyers be challenging that before the courts? And then secondly, following on from that, and it may be a, may provide the answer to the first question is what would the courts do? Would they have any truck with those sorts of arguments at this particular point in time? Murray, can I ask you that first? Of course, Richard. For my for my part. It does strike me as a very, very technical legal argument. And if I imagine myself being a non-lawyer um, listening to our discussion at this point, um, I think I would be thinking um, to what end uh, are we heading here about the legality of the regulations or not? Um, my, my view is that um, had Parliament been asked by the government to give express statutory authority in the what's now the Coronavirus Act 
um, to make these sorts of regulations. Without a shadow of a doubt, that would have been passed in the Coronavirus Act last week. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it may be the case that this is a, um, uh, an oversight on the part of the uh, parliamentary drafter. Um, and in the sort of exigencies of the situation, this legislation was prepared very hurriedly and passed very hurriedly. It wasn't picked up. Um, but I think that um, for my part, it's, uh, it's quite a technical argument on which not much turns for me. Um, I may be wrong about that. But the more important question for me, I think, is the way in which these powers are exercised and the importance of um, the proper um, application of these powers on the ground. But that's something I think we'll be coming on to later in our discussion. I, I agree with Murray on this. And there are, it's, so if a challenge were brought, unquestionably, the government would immediately pass uh, a measure under the Civil Contingencies Act, for example, um, in order to plug the gap. And but this is a point that Murray mentioned earlier, which is that the steps that have been taken so far are ones which do appear to have been led by the scientific advice and therefore are measures that are necessary. And so to, uh, to, 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 to bring a challenge in circumstances where those measures are plainly necessary in order to meet the, the uh, emergency situation does seem not to be the best thing for lawyers to be spending their time doing. And it also leads on to the second question that you asked, which is what are the courts likely to do? And I have to say, whilst there is a respectable argument for saying that this legislation can be read to say these regulations are beyond the powers of the primary legislation, there's also an incredibly respectable argument for saying that they are within the powers and that you can read it consistently. And that's what I'm sure the courts would do. Can I move the discussion on a, a, a little then to what we've been um hinting at which is um how these powers are exercised and we kind of do that a couple of days after the kind of news reports of derbyshire police flying drones um uh, 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 and shaming people and stopping people um what's the what's the message that needs to go out to public authorities in respect to the legal powers they've now been provided with uh murray for me, it's, it shows the importance of rule of law and human rights standards being understood by people on the front line, the, the, the people who are um, enforcing these laws, um, dealing with members of the public. Um, we need to make sure that uh, the, the basic requirements that we've been discussing as lawyers, as requirements of legality, translate into things which can be understood by the police officer in the park going up to a group of people and saying, you really actually ought to be at home. Um, and exercising the powers, the exceptional powers which they've now been given. Um, so we need to make sure that they understand basic concepts um, such as non-arbitrariness, non-discrimination, um, and as well as them being sort of used sensitively and sensibly, there are some basic sort of legal standards which we need to translate into um, the language that's, that's going to be make sense in those frontline situations. So in a way, the most important rule of law and human rights document um, in, in the news this week is the, uh, the guidance from the National Police Chiefs Council. Uh, to the people on the front line about how they exercise these powers. That's really um, going to determine whether or not the exercise of these powers in practice, as is often the case, uh, is compatible with those basic standards. And I think so far, the debate has been quite interesting. It's it's one police force that 
um, seems to have overstepped the line somewhat with the use of overhead drones um, and probably gone uh, rather further than the public is prepared to trust uh, the state with these sorts of powers. Um, but that seems to be at the moment um, a single police force. And provoking the ire of Jonathan Sumption, sort of former Supreme Court justice and libertarian thinker. Yeah, libertarian thinker, yes. Uh, I think I think we could all agree that his reaction has been something of a massive reaction. Um, well, if I start talking about us living in a police state, uh, uh, which, given that there really was one police force, the Derbyshire force, that was overstepping the mark, whereas most other forces have actually continued to see the importance of policing by consent. Um, and the NPCC, the National College of Policing, has now today issued guidance, which Maureen's just mentioned, which is all again premised upon trying to ensure that police officers continue well, to police by consent. Well, I think a future um, interesting podcast can be, you know, the appropriateness of retired senior judges of entering into the political realm afterwards, and particularly Lord Sumption. I mean, we can save that for a, save that one for a rainy a rainy day. now if I may just to look at the Human Rights Act um, which is uh, obviously uh, something close to uh, our hearts and that of uh, Daily Mail readers everywhere and I I want to kind of examine the extent to which it has helped government uh, navigate a path through the legislation and ensuring that it protects human rights and that it's proportionate um, Murray, you've obviously been absolutely at the heart of the Human Rights Act development in this country, not least through your work in Parliament. I wonder if you could just kind of set out whether you think that the Human Rights Act has played a role, and if so... Yes, I think the Human Rights Act has played an extremely important role. The One of the documents that not many people will have uh, spent much time looking at when the coronavirus bill was passing through Parliament was the Memorandum on the European Convention on Human Rights, which the government prepares for the Joint Committee on Human Rights. And that's quite an interesting document. It runs to some 31 pages of close analysis prepared by the government across government departments, explaining why, in the government's view, the provisions in the bill are compatible with all the rights in the European Convention on Human Rights, and therefore the minister is able to sign the Section 19 statement that it's a compatible bill. Um, And that memorandum... ECHR memorandum is the product of many years of the Joint Committee on Human Rights scrutinising legislation um, for compatibility with the rights protected by the Human Rights Act. And over the years, the government getting very good at analysing at an early stage in the policy process, the compatibility of its legislation with human rights requirements and providing that analysis to Parliament so that Parliament can scrutinise it and uh, do its own check and satisfy itself of that compatibility. So I think that memorandum itself demonstrates the importance of the Human Rights Act structure. Um, And it's an important part of all the accountability mechanisms which are so important in an emergency such as this, when the government really does depend on the public being able to trust what it's doing and not going too far. So I think the Human Rights Act has been very important. And I'd also point out that it's also significant that the government has not derogated from the European Convention. This act does contain really quite extraordinary and exceptional measures, but the government has 
not notified the that Strasbourg Council of Europe of an intention to derogate because the convention itself allows for in exceptional situations interferences with rights and proportionate and necessary restrictions on rights provided they are done within a legal framework um, and capable of justification and in the case of an emergency are going to be temporary and only enforced for as long as it's absolutely necessary um, and i think that's very important because again it brings us back to our opening comments about the importance of recognizing that law still applies in an emergency this is still all being done within a legal framework and that's the basic requirements of the rule of law and Phil, Philippa, obviously I'm not going to test you on all 102 sections of the Coronavirus Act and the 29-odd schedules, but, I mean, do you, is your reading of it that whether government declares that it is compatible with the Human Rights Act, that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so where powers are conferred, they are to be exercised uh, only where necessary, to achieve the particular goal and in a manner that's proportionate. So that principle of necessity and proportionality is, is written right through the legislation. Um, and then there are also mechanisms of accountability to Parliament and uh, a time limit on the period of the measures, which is a long time limit um, and is also um, an extendable time limit. Um, so those are those are more questionable. And Murray, um, because aspects, we're potentially complying um, with the Human Rights Act, at least on paper in the Act, let's see how it works in practice, but at least on paper in the um, Act, does that mean that we can be fairly relaxed as to whether we are also complying with the relevant international standards? The relevant international standards on emergencies uh, are a little more detailed, perhaps, than uh, than just the Human Rights Act requirements. Um, and in particular, in relation to matters such as the duration of the emergency and uh, the arrangements for exiting the emergency and returning back to normal, um, and also provisions for um, accountability of the exercise of the powers during the emergency itself. Um, the, the international standards, certainly in relation to other types of emergency, um, are a bit more detailed uh, on those things, and I think on those uh, on those aspects, the the the, the jury remains remain, remains out really in terms of the the arrangements we've adopted in this country, the emergency measures. The two year duration that Philippa has mentioned um, is too long. Um, it, that's quite an extraordinary length for an emergency piece, emergency piece of legislation. It was improved during the bill's quick passage through Parliament. There is provision for a six month review by Parliament. Um, but so at the six month point, Parliament can consider whether or not it wants it to continue in force. But that's a very blunt instrument because it can't decide that parts of it need amending. Um, there's no guarantee that Parliament will have an opportunity to amend at the six month point. It's a take it or leave it uh, provision. So that's that's something which there's scope to improve uh, in during the course of the emergency. And there's also scope, I think, to improve on the provision that the Act makes for reporting to Parliament and the information and the detail that government provides to Parliament. Obviously, during an emergency, it's important that ministers aren't dis distracted from the dealing with the emergency itself and taken away from the front line. But nevertheless, it's important that there is enough information available to Parliament so it can do its job, uh, especially during an emergency of this kind, when, of course, it's going to be quite difficult for the normal institutions of accountability like Parliament and the courts to be doing their job while social distancing restrictions are in place. So Parliament itself is going to have to be quite imaginative in how it makes sure it does that job 
uh, and government's going to have to give it the information to make sure it can do it. Can I just really to wrap up the conversation? Can I just ask us to kind of look ahead? So we've kind of reached a point where I think we are generally we have some concerns about the approach the government has taken thus far. There there are gaps, there are potential pitfalls, but we're kind of giving them a sort of a a, a, a wide margin uh, in which to operate, at least from seeing as as, as litigators. But looking ahead in an emergency that, you know, is going to last at least several months. Philippa, what are the type of issues that you could see that would result you getting into court with the human rights type of challenge arising out of this emergency? Well, an obvious one would be if the restrictions remain in place longer than is supported by the scientific advice. And that would obviously result in... uh, many lawyers rushing to court, many organisations rushing to court. Um, In the longer term, if the uh, legislative measures themselves, the emergency powers, remain in place any longer than uh, it can possibly be said that we remain in an emergency situation needing to tackle uh, the virus. Um, Those are the two most obvious I can think of. So human rights lawyers are giving the government a bit of a wider berth at the moment, but keeping very anxious eyes on the proportionality of the measures and the justification for the measures. Yeah, I think, I think at all times, whatever new measures are introduced, the focus is always going to be on, on the extent to which they are necessary to meet the particular problem that's been identified and their proportionality in doing so. I was just going to add one thing um, to, to what Philip has said. Um, our experience of states of emergency in the past, in this and many other countries, is that it's quite difficult to bring them to an end, even when they are um, formally declared to be over. Um, powers that are introduced to deal with emergencies often linger. Um, they often uh, change the culture if they're in place for quite some time in a, in a country. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we need to be very... Uh, aware of here. Um, There are already some interesting discussions going on about, for example, um, contact tracing and the implications for privacy and data protection. Um, Again, there's a strong public health argument for uh, contact tracing and uh, we'd have seen the stuff in the news this week about the the new um, app that might be available that um, will help people to ascertain whether they've been uh, in touch with someone or close to someone who's uh, contracted the virus. Um, But we must make sure that we're very vigilant to not let us just get used to more intrusive means of surveillance of the population um, by default. So I think there's a, there's another important uh, point to, to make about the end of the emergency that we need to make sure that uh, we don't accidentally uh, sleepwalk into um, into accepting some of these constraints um, as just being necessary without us first of all having uh, um, been content that that's what we're letting ourselves in for. We're all remaining completely vigilant about our health. We're going to remain vigilant about the potential encroachment on our civil liberties and human rights. That's a yes, and I think Murray's point on data is absolutely critical, and um, that is something that uh, we should really think about another podcast on because um, we're beginning to see. It's only just now, isn't it? I think Murray that this. 
um, uh, uh, app is going to come online. But one can see how that could be. It's, at the moment, it's supposed to be voluntary. Um, but you can see how uh, so many different, both, both public and private organisations, will limit people's access to activities according to whether or not they are actually themselves using that app and can show that they are clear of the virus or... So we're going to move from not. surveillance capitalism to surveillance healthcare. And that's definitely a subject for suitable for a, a future Matrix pod. And probably a good point for me to draw this one uh, to a close. But before we end, um, what I'm going to ask from both of you, if I may, um, so these times in which we need positive inputs and not just negative critique is from both of you or each of you rather. Could I could I ask you just to just to tell us one resolution that you're going to try to keep to during the uh, endless hours of lockdown, Murray? Mine's actually very boring, actually, Richard. Um, I'm making the most of uh, being still able to run in the fields near my house to uh, increase <laughs> how much running I do so I can get back into running half marathons again. Um, so I'm, I'm gradually doing that, but I'm quite nervously looking above me now for drones. Yeah, and just keep off the peak districts, Murray. Philippa, what are you doing? Well, also really boring. Mine is also exercise day. Well, I'm going to outbore you both because... Um, Mine is that about six years ago, I downloaded a meditation app for about for about twenty pounds a year, and I've only progressed beyond lesson three. So uh, this is going to be the time. Of course, I haven't started it yet, but this is going to be the time um, I do that. Well, look, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, this is the first Matrix uh, Law Pod. Um, others are going to come out uh, next week. Uh, we're going to keep on examining. Uh, the human rights and rule of law issues uh, that arise out of this emergency. And we are, as we were saying, going to remain vigilant to ensure and to try and campaign for uh, compliance at all times with the rule of law and human rights. So uh, thank you to both very much. And uh, to those who have been listening, thank you. Thank you.